Hello and welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today we're joined by Josh and Carl. Hello. And we are going to talk about Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which is one of the fundamental texts of military wisdom and military advice, but it is surprisingly applicable to many other areas in life because fundamentally you could say life is conflict or it involves a great bit of conflict. I'm sure you like the reference and that you agree with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a, a sort of similar approach that we took to uh, the Book of Five Rings, which, funnily enough, I have right next to me. And um, yeah, it, even though it's explicitly about um, the way of the blade, if you will, um, there are lots of lessons that you can learn from it, just principles which not only apply to combat and, and conflict, but also to just living a good life and actually lots of the principles for excellence in uh, you know, mastering certain weapons apply just as much um, as stated in, in the book um, to, to things like carpentry or other professions. He's saying that there is a, a correct way of operating and I think that um, there's a similar undercurrent running through Sun Tzu as well and uh, I think there's a lot of Taoism in there as well which I'm sure we'll get to eventually. I think we will. And I think it is really interesting to note that a lot of texts that are about military wisdom, just like the Book of Five Rings, as you said, or about martial arts, they are applicable in more than that, in more than this, um, in more than that, uh, let's say, level. Because there are many people who read them, like business leaders, mm. people in uh, all sorts of, in politics, as we mentioned before, but also people who care about self-improvement because you could fundamentally describe almost everything as a battle. Even something so, um, let's say, relatively innocuous as going to the gym, you could describe it as a battle between two sides and there is a kind of, con of uh, context there that makes these um, sayings really applicable. I, I remember covering some clinical psychology on depression and they talked about the battle of waking up in the morning, just getting out of bed for some people is uh, a battle which they sometimes don't see victory. So it's always very um, contextual to the individual in question as to what they consider the, the point of conflict. But it's one of those things that it could apply relatively universally because no one is um, completely, um, they, they, no one avoids suffering and yes. conflict. It's know, a struggle of opening of your eyes life. in the morning, yeah. and especially, yes. And uh, there are all sorts of interesting um, things that will go there in a minute. But let us just say that um, this is a text that has been written by supposedly a legendary figure. Mm. Uh, not, there is a scholarly debate as to whether Sun Tzu was one person or more, or whether, there, or whether he even existed and whether the text as we know it now has sort of uh, changed through time and whether it involves lots of commentary. Because I have an edition by, with a translation by Thomas Cleary. He is a very big figure in translating uh, Eastern texts. I think he has translated close to 80. And um, he has this translation and he has a lot of the commentary with, with it of mm -hmm. other generals. They were saying and they were uh, analyzing each quote. Yeah. It's also not an easy thing to do because ancient Chinese is significantly different and because it's um, a language form in which 
the characters have a very specific cultural context that might be lost over time, the actual meanings attached to certain characters may be impossible to decipher because, um, as we've covered before in lots of other Eastern philosophy, um, the characters tend to have all of these different connotations. It has a sort of dictionary definition, if you will, but then there'll be all of these other concepts that might be far less intuitive attached to them. And sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to capture that in English because each character, each word, if you will, is rich with a wealth of meaning and associations that you might not have with, say, an English word. And you mentioned before, in our contemplations, we did the difference between uh, language like Chinese, ancient Chinese that has the symbolic ideograms and the phonetic languages that are in a lot of the Western world. Mm -hmm. That there is a sort of a depiction of something with yes. the characters and the but ideograms. It, but it also changes the purpose of the writing itself. Like yeah. writing in ancient Chinese it's more tied into this um, philosophy of mindfulness and meditation. Therefore, they'll, you know, as with the uh, Tao Te Ching, they'll deliberately write in contradictions as a test for someone who they know will be sitting and thinking and meditating about it. Whereas the tendency in the West is to just state explicitly what you mean and just expect people to follow it to the letter okay. rather than um, to try and think through something and make it sort of their own. I, I kind of like the idea of setting someone on a path and not necessarily telling them the destination even if you know what it is because there's a lot of wisdom in the fact that you can tell someone what is right, the, the right thing to do, but until they've got some sort of personal experience they don't have an understanding. It's a sort of uh, soap impression of reality and I think that experience is the sort of gold standard for which truth should be tested and that approach I think is more consistent with that mindset. So a lot has been said about the Taoist element of this book. So uh, Josh you're our, in a sense uh, expert for uh, Eastern philosophy. Would you say that this is accurate? Oh absolutely. Yeah. So The Art of War was written about a uh, hundred years before the, we was, you know, this is obviously estimating because we don't know the exact publication yeah. dates and to, to even look at it in that way is a bit anachronistic because yeah. it wasn't like they had printing presses and, you know, they were flying off the shelves. So it might have, you know, been written and it took a while to circulate. But you can see the um, fingerprints, if you will, of Taoism um, all throughout the art of war. Um, for example, he even explicitly says you need to be, you need to embody the qualities of water and he's talking about it in the sense of adaptability. And I actually have a chapter I'd like to read from the Tao Te Ching which talks about exactly that and it is, it's pretty explicit as to the virtues of water. It says, people of the highest virtue are like water. Water benefits creation without any conflict and it favours the low places shunned by the common people. In this it resembles the Tao. Live in harmony with the land, allow emotions to run deep, show benevolence in your dealings with others, speak with honesty, arrange things according to the proper order, manage according to your ability, act according to opportunity, 
without conflict there is no animosity. And obviously you can see the applicability of that in warfare, yeah. but the, I find it very interesting that we know that the art of war came before by about a hundred years, maybe less, maybe a little bit more, but on average. Okay. And so that indicates that actually these ideas in the Tao Te Ching were simply a formalization of ideas that were already um, well established in ancient Chinese society. We're talking, you know, 500 BC, this, around this sort of time, maybe even 600 BC, depending on you know, where we look. But it's interesting to me that um, it presages um, the sort of formalization of the key Taoist text, uh, and yet does so in a way that you could almost think if you didn't know when each were published, that the art of war came afterwards yeah. rather than before, because there's such similarity between the two. I'm going <clears throat> to be very controversial. Um, I, I don't think that it's a very abstract text at all. And I think that actually we're bringing to it something that isn't necessarily contained within it. Um, for example, in The Art of War, when he um, says uh, to be like water, he, what he's saying is don't be rigid um, because The Art of War is a very practical book and it's very directly about military tactics. Mm -hmm. It's explicitly about military tactics and about the management of armies in the field and before and how to fight and win battles. Um, and so when we imprint upon it this kind of, um, I mean, it obviously it is from the cultural context that produced the mm. Tao, right? So that, that is true, but in that specific quote, he's being contextual and it, contextually he's saying that if you are essentially rigid and you stick to the same tactics, then your enemies will learn them and destroy you with them. Um, yeah. And so when he's saying you've got to flow like water, he's not, um, he's not appealing to some sort of abstract uh, philosophical concept. Um, he's saying you have to adapt to the circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and, that's, and I'm not saying wrong, obviously. But of course. What, what I'm saying is like on a much more immediate level, like he's saying in a specific metaphorical way to make sure that um, the, the general he's advising um, understands that essentially the context is always king, the contingent is always the king on the battlefield, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people will approach any subject, but especially war, when we're so, that's so dangerous, um, with quite rigid mindsets and a lot of preconceptions that may, may or may not hold up. So you've got to, you know, move with the terrain. Um, but it's, it's, it's not on, he's, he's not appealing to a broader personal or philosophical position. He's saying, no, in the immediate, people will die if you don't adapt to circumstance. I do agree yeah. with that and I think it's actually important to talk about the tone of the text and how it differs from a lot of the other texts of oh, the yeah. time because one thing that you can certainly notice about it is that um, it, it doesn't mince words does it? No. It is no. pretty totally stark and explicit yeah. and the, my point in bringing up the, the water aspect is simply that I found it interesting yeah, I'm that not, it's circulating. And, and I'm not saying it's not there um, and I'm not saying it doesn't come mm -hmm. from that cultural context. And you sure. are, of course, right that you know the the 
the paradigm of ideas is the same and mm -hmm. has obviously stretched back. And you know, the the art of war was probably a collection of oral advice that got formalized into a text, as most ancient texts are. Um, and so that that is true. But like the, I think that you make a good point there. That like the the remarkable remarkable thing about the art of war is it feels like a Western text. It does, yeah. It, it's a, and it, it's because it's very low to the ground and it's very direct. And you are, you, you're completely right. The, in the West, we've got very straightforward and sort of firm, logical ways of connecting ideas. Um, you know, there's no, nothing like in the tower. It's like, well, this is the, uh, the, 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 the mystery between things that we're talking about. There's nothing like that in the West mm -hmm. uh, because we're very empirical and pragmatic. And, that, and so Sun Tzu feels like he could have been writing in you know, first century Rome. You know, this is, this is like um, Morris's strategon, strategicon or something like that. You know, it's like, no, you must do this, you must do that, you must do the other, or else you lose. I think that's part of the reason why people still read it to this day, is that yeah. it's aged so well because it's um, taking that very practical look at things. And you, you can obviously understand why he's doing it. It almost seems obvious to, to state it. But yeah. It's that it's life or death, you know. Mm -hmm. The when it comes to philosophy and and things like that, it makes sense that they're trying to communicate all of the nuances, mm -hmm. and they they don't want to be too forceful with pushing a single idea in in the case that it's wrong, and it's it's misrepresented because you know in in the Tao Te Ching, there's an understanding of the limitation of the human perspective to understand the truth of things, mm -hmm. and that's certainly present in uh, The Art of War, but in a much um, more practical framing in that you can be mistaken about the things in which you may have been taught. You've always got to be vigilant as to, you know, whether you've been mistaken and been misled because, as, as he says, um, deception is an essential part of warfare. Well, and all, so, all warfare is based on deception. Yes, exactly. Which is interesting. I don't know why I butchered that quote when yeah. it's so... It's uh, such a classic. It is, yeah. And it's right at the beginning as well. Mm -hmm. And what, what I love about um, Sun Tzu is he's just... Like you said, he's not mincing words. He's like, look, I know, you don't know. These are the things you need to be thinking about, and this is what you have to do. And it's just... The, there's not even any debate about it. And this is why everyone... The, it's a common critique of Sun Tzu saying, oh... These are just obvious things, aren't they? And it's like, no, actually they're not. Because actually when you, you're managing 100,000 fighting men, a lot of things that seem obvious when you're sat on your sofa looking at your screen of Rome Total War are actually not obvious at all, <laughs> right? And, the, the, and, and this, this is my main point about The Art of War. Is it's, it's about mindfulness, really, in the, in the base of it. Um, because... When, when you are in a position where you have um, a, a certain number of things and people that you have to manage, it's very easy to become sort of myopic and solipsistic about this and say, right, okay, we've done these things. And Sun Tzu is saying, no, you have to be aware of the entire board and, and everything in it and also of the perspective of the person on the other side. So when he is drawing your attention to, are the men well rested? Are the men things? I mean, these are remedial things, but you have to keep them in your mind while you're also thinking about, you know, is that a good place to put my men? What are his men like? You know, does he know about my positions? 
do I know about his positions? And so you've got, you've got to juggle all of these things. And so him listing them all isn't him being simplistic. It's him making present in your thoughts all of the various factors that will affect your chances of victory. I think it also serves a very important metacognitive purpose in that he's, by demonstrating quite clear points, mm. if you will, you know, the, the generals he's writing for is a sort of instructional manual. Yeah. They'll be aware of these concepts and probably well acquainted um, with some of them at least, but hearing someone who has a certain level of mastery, um, which is self-evident from the text, I think, seeing how, it, how all of the ideas tie together and how he actually approaches and thinks about these concepts and how methodical you can be about it, demonstrating that thought process is kind of one of the important things, I think, because one of the, the themes I picked up on running through the text is that you've got to be cognizant of all factors at all times. Yeah. You know, he doesn't explicitly say that, but no, but it that's seems the to be, effect of the text. Yeah, yeah. He, it seems to be implicit in the text and mm. it seems to be one of the, the, the key things which um, you can take away from it is that actually it's very, very complicated to be a general. I yes. mean, you, you don't necessarily need to have read history to know that, but you can at least gather that much from the text, which is quite short as well, um, that they had to consider a lot and it gives you a certain amount of respect for the, the profession, if you will, although I was already quite respectful of it to begin with. <laughs> yeah. But it, it certainly highlights a standard that is expected as well. And I think that part of the reason that the text exists is likely that it was potentially commissioned to set a standard and therefore it makes sense that it's trying to set out to say, this is what you must do, because it's, it's quite um, commanding, if you will, mm. Um, mm. which makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it's explicit. Mm. I want to say something because I think that in a way it is philosophical. It is simultaneously explicit, but there is also rich metaphor. For instance, when he says, for the impact of armed forces to be like stones thrown on eggs is a matter of emptiness and fullness. This, is a, this isn't exactly explicit, and it, there is, seems to be a philosophical underpinning. But I think that when we're talking about philosophical underpinning, we don't talk about um, rich metaphysical aspect of it, like saying like the one being and how the second level in the great chain of being follows from mm -hmm. the one and emanates. I think it has to do with, the, with pure wisdom, just like be in the moment, judge the situation correctly, read the room, read the conditions of the mm -hmm. battlefield, and water represents a sort of liquidity and a sort of flux. Yeah. And there is a message that the conditions of the battlefield could change any moment. Mm. So if you're too rigid, as you say, you're not going to read the room correctly. Yeah. You're going to be stuck with your, in your own mind as opposed to being that condition of emptiness that is, I think, a metaphor for saying eliminate the subjective aspect of it, as you said, the rigidity coming from the inner sense and just read the situation mm. and do the right thing. Yeah. One of, the, one of the points that when you take away from the overarching text is you have to have a plan. Yes. You have to know all of the situations in advance and then you have to have prudent judgment of what's actually happening so your plan and yourself can be flexible 
to deal with events as they evolve uh, in exactly. order to secure victory. Yes. And let me just uh, say the last quote from the first chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, I quote from the translation of Thomas Cleary. That's the translation I'm going to use. Sun Tzu says, the one who figures on victory at headquarters before even doing battle is the one who has the most strategic factors on his side. The one who figures in ability to prevail at headquarters before doing battle is the one who has the least strategic factors on his side. The one with many strategic factors in his favor wins. The one with a few strategic factors in his favor loses. How much more so for one with no strategic factors in his favor? Observing the matter in this way, I can see who will win and who will lose. Yes. I think this is very, a very pithy way of saying what, what you said before, that mm. he focuses on intelligence, on knowledge of the battlefield, and mm. also self-knowledge, knowledge of the army, and yeah. And well, th this, this is something that's really well attested throughout military history as well, to be honest. Yeah. Um, the, the, the classic example of this is Hannibal. Um, Hannibal had obviously spent a lot of time planning his campaign. And what the, uh, the, he, there's a, I can't remember exactly the formulation, I suppose it depends on translation. But if you know yourself and the enemy, then you'll never lose in a hundred battles, something yes. like that. Right? Yeah, that's from Sun Tzu. Um, yeah, and, and, so that, and that, that's completely true. And this, this is really well attested because one of the things that Hannibal was famous for is being interested, excessively interested, it seemed, in the character of the Roman generals he was fighting, um, this is what he would be most interested in, rather than the dispositions of their troops and things like that. Yes. Because that, that's all sort of secondary knowledge. Because Hannibal's goal and Hannibal's strategy was to out psychologically outplay the enemy. And that's what Sun Tzu advises all the way through the book. Yes. You know, you've got to know why your opponent does this and you've got to play you've got to engage in a kind of psychological warfare, and that's why all warfare is based on deception. Uh, and, I mean, Hannibal's just such a great example of this. Uh, the Lake Trasimene, the Battle of Lake Trasimene, is such a great example of this, because Hannibal hides all of his forces just behind the ridge of a hill and conducts probably the largest ambush in all of history and wipes out a Roman army with barely any casualties to himself. And this was only possible because he knew the mindset of the Romans themselves and the Roman commander at the time. And the same with the Battle of Cannae as well. Um, he knew that Varro was a very headstrong person, and he knew this because he spent spies out and he gathered all this information. And he, he, Paulus was very conservative, Varro was very aggressive. And so he would just propose the battle on the day that Varro is there, and Varro couldn't resist. And of course this leads them into a, the, the grand trap of Cannae and gets their army annihilated. And so the, it, Sun Tzu is, is correct on all of these things. And, we yeah. thought, and Hannibal's just the, the most easy example. There are other good examples of these, but that's just the most easy. Uh, let me just say at the battle of, about the Battle of Cannae. Was it not the case that the Roman consuls were switching yes. on a daily basis yes. the leadership, which in a sense seen, spread a kind of confusion to the soldiers and also led Hannibal into take advantage of and position his army much better than the Romans? because. Is it not the case that w the kind of strategy that one person was push one consul was pushing forward was in a sense undone by the other consul the next day? Well, uh, Paulus's strategy was to not engage in a giant battle with Hannibal, yeah. uh, whereas Varro was like, "Look, we're just going to raise the largest army we've ever had," and then just steamroll yeah. him. 
But Hannibal had learned from his previous experience of fighting the Romans. And so you can tell that Hannibal had very, very well thought out how he was going to annihilate them in this great battle because the, the Romans have a very strong forward punch. Um, but that was pretty much about it at the yeah. time. Uh, and so Hannibal just um, made it so that his line could retreat a great distance. And the Romans would just go straight into it. And then they found themselves just totally enveloped uh, yeah. on the field. That He learned that from um, the Trebia because the Roman, he, he formed a, so, a solid line and the Romans punched through it, but he still managed to win. And so he was, essentially he created a, a great deal of like flexibility in his own army to, in, to absorb the Roman punch. And the Romans didn't spend any amount of time thinking about Hannibal or his army. Uh, they just thought, well, we're just strong, so we're just going to go forward, aren't we? But Hannibal had clearly thought about this in advance when he yeah. laid out his dispositions. And the Ro- it, it never crossed the Roman mind, hang on a second. There's something happening here that we're not aware of. Why is yeah. he like that? You know, who is this guy? What are we, you know, they, they were just like, oh, he's a barbarian and we're just going to kill him. Uh, yeah. And they got them totally destroyed. So, it, it, it's so, interesting because this is a brilliant illustration of some of the maxims of Sun Tzu. Like, oh, yeah. you know, know your, yourself and your enemy. Know the battlefield, know the strategy. But also, yeah. he talks explicitly about the faults of generals. And he says that, for instance, some, when some generals are too proud yeah. and, to, and they, they can be lured into a trap if the enemy appeals to their sentiment of uh, honor. Yeah, and, and not just that, it's not just honor as well. It's, um, I guess, some, some sort of arrogance. Because, I mean, at Cannae, Cannae was a trap, but it was on open ground with nothing hidden and with no surprises, right? So, and, and, and even, you know, a great general is capable of creating a trap in the open with nothing available. Yeah. And, Sun Tzu would have um, definitely had a lot to say about the Battle of Cannae as well. Yeah. Uh, because it, 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 on Hannibal's side, it follows many of his maxims. On the Roman side, it violates almost all of them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the, the framing uh, that, that Sun Tzu has here because I think it deliberately puts the onus on the individual general hmm. as to the success or failure of a battle. He's tr- trying to say, well, these external factors are to be understood by you. You can't say, oh, well, you know, the, the sun was not in our favour, yeah. and you can't blame other things. It's ultimately up to you to understand things, and the reason that people win and others lose is that the person who won was a better strategist. Things yeah. were in their favour. And so I think that the, the nature of the text, he's kind of um, reminding them that this is your failure, you need to own it, and therefore you need to be better. And that's quite important because when you're dealing with something as complicated as a military campaign, the tendency might be to say, well, this is very, very complicated. I had to overlook a lot of things. I did lots very well, mm. but this unforeseen factor scuppered my campaign and therefore, you know, I did my best. I, I washed my hands clean of the failure, but... Yeah, that's not good enough. Yeah. And died, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that he's, he's trying to make people, um, well, general specifically, far more focused on their role. And actually, it's a game of understanding the world around you, understanding how you interact with it, and understanding your enemy. And understanding cause and effect as well. Exactly. This, yeah. this is why people are contemptuous of his, you know, if you're in marshy ground, find a copse of trees and put them at your back. If you're on level ground, find a, a slope and put that at your back and things like this. Put your, put your men on the high ground. Make sure you march during the day. All these sorts of things. 
but they're not when, when taken in totality actually you could easily forget these things or you could think well maybe i can just risk it this time like when when he's saying um, don't force march your men 100 li um because you'll none hardly anything will get there and when they get there they'll be useless you know don't march them 50 li because then uh, or no a tenth of your men will be useless when you march them 50 li only half of them will be useful you know when you march them 30 li, you'll lose a third of your army things like this like these things are important and they, they are literally like a campaign can hinge on these things. Mm-hmm. But these sort of simple factors, I think he's making it implicit that there is a correct way of doing things. Oh, yeah. There is a way that is better than other ways, not always created equal. Absolutely. And therefore yeah. he's trying to say, have a sort of objective read of the situation mm try and adapt yourself to that situation yeah. and you will succeed. And that, although he may not um, state that explicitly every time, he says it explicitly once or twice throughout the text, oh, yeah. doesn't he? And it's, it's the general theme of the text It is, well. yeah. I know what I'm doing, you don't know what you're doing. Do it this way or you die. <laughs> I think this is a, a very prevalent feature of wisdom literature across the board, not just military wisdom, mm-hmm. because it is the, you know, I know, you don't know, I'm teaching you. Yes. And... Um, it is, sim- it is meant to be simple. I don't think it's simplistic to say s- stuff that we may think to be self-evident. We may take as self-evident mm. because I want to ask you one question. Uh, how many times are we making self-evident mistakes? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Con- constantly. Yeah. We're constantly making self-evident mistakes. So I think that one of the goals of wisdom literature in general is to resist the natural tendency of, of forgetting mm. a lot of things and bear the whole in mind and do what we are doing, engage in every task while bearing the whole in mind because we very frequently do mistakes that are unbelievably simple. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.